The History of Castlebar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie. Hello and welcome to the History of Castlebar podcast. I'm John Healy. And I'm Noel Campbell. And each week we'll be discussing a selected chapter from our book, The History of Castlebar, which is available online from mayobooks.ie or in store in the Castle Bookshop. Today we'll be looking at the chapter headed Crime and Policing, which Noel is uh, the expert on. And Noel, could I start maybe by asking you, in general, who policed Castlebar in the past? Well, who policed Castlebar? There was numerous forces and services and corps of infantry and paramilitaries, etc., over the years since maybe if we went back even as far as the first Charter of Incorporation for Castlebar, which was in 1613. So included in that charter was permission for the town to uh, appoint two sergeants at mace. And those sergeants at mace had various roles and lots of them were very... Uh, you know, uh, almost looked like pomp and regal, but they also had a, a kind of a serious role in, in that they were peace officers and acted as constables in the town. Now, for a town the size of Castlebar back in 1613, we're not 100% sure what the population was, but two constables doesn't seem very much. But of course, it was uh, the main policing force at the time were the regular army, the regular British army. So you can imagine a heavily, uh, heavily armed army and regiments in the town as there were for hundreds of years but in terms of kind of that local uh, policing it was two sergeants at mace I suppose were the town's first police policing group and only two of them in it and we're not even sure I couldn't even find uh, the names of who were appointed to those positions over the years and usually you would see that Um, funded by the Taxpayer funded by the yeah the red Cas- parish exactly say. Castlebar yeah. Corporation was uh, it was a very closed shop but it was funded mainly by the Lucans uh, oh. right up until it was considered worthless basically and it was done away with with an, an act of Parliament in eighteen forty one but it was dying long before that and even by the end of the say the seventeen hundreds those Castlebar Corporation was pretty much uh, uh, dead wood it was it wasn't fit for purpose and it was, certainly wasn't fit for any policing role. So what we had at the end of the 1700s was British Army, well-trained British Army were, uh, they were really wasting their training, policing, drunkenness and vagrancy in, in towns like Castlebar. And not only that, John, they had to go, they had bigger fish to fry, they had to go over and try and secure their colonies in North America. So while there was a drain of British troops out of Ireland to fight in the uh, in, in North America to try and retain the colonies, British colonies, that left a big gap here in Ireland. And who was going to police the county or the country then Mm -hmm. so the British themselves came up with different uh, it was really trial and error first in 17 in the 1770s at the same time as the British were leaving to secure colonies they formed groups of volunteers uh, volunteer corps they were called and there was a group actually formed here in Castlebar called the Castlebar Independence and they were formed on the 17th of March 1779 under the leadership of a man called Patrick Randall MacDonald. I'm not sure exactly what training these volunteer groups would have had. Uh, they were, you know, the group here were called Castlebar Independence. Around the other Cas- around the other towns in Ireland, they had different names. There was, uh, you know, they had some flamboyant names and some of them in, in Dublin and Cork were quite, you know, I think there was a lot of one-upmanship in terms of these corps mm-hmm. and their uniforms even. In, in our book, actually, there's a great painting from contemporary accounts of what the Castlebar Independence uniform would look like and Ger Staunton kindly painted that for us. Uh, it's it's very impressive. It's a, 
you know, scarlet coat and uh, green cuffs. But every corps would have had their own uniform. And again, they were trying to upstage each other, I suppose, because during the downtime, uh, when there wasn't any crime, a lot of a lot of their time was spent parading and pomping through the town on horseback. And it must have looked fantastic. And how very proud you were to have your own scarlet coat, uh, you know, and uh, that's what they did. But they actually had a policing uh, function. And uh, there was one uh, case I came across in 1783 where a regiment, there was um, dragoon, dragoons were stationed here in the barracks and as they did from time to time they they hit the drink uh, um, they wouldn't have been friendly to the people of Castlebar who were mainly Catholic uh, the dragoons were by and large they were, they were they were Protestant but in one case on Patrick's Day 1783 two dragoons uh, stationed here in the town dressed up they dressed up in kind of mocking gear uh, they had potatoes around their neck and whatnot, and went through the town stopping at different houses uh, of well-known Catholics and mocking them. As it was quoted, it was said they would they would carry out a decent acts outside each of these houses. I've no doubt there was drink involved, and there were, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the, their their colleagues in the barracks obviously sent these guys out. But the mayor of the town of Castle Bar at the time asked the dragoons, "Go back to your barracks. You know, you're creating a nuisance." It was a big day in the town, and people would have been out celebrating, so they knew there was going to be a clash, and this is what they were looking for. They wanted to, uh, you know, they wanted to start something with the townspeople, uh, and it actually backfired on them you know, in a in a very serious way. So the dragoons uh, took no heed of the mayor and the mayor, all he had at hand to, to combat this was to call on the Castlebar Independence, the local volunteer group. So they came out and delighted to be called out. They chased the dragoons back and uh, peace was restored for a time. The dragoons, obviously back in their barracks, says we're not going to put up with this. You know, we won't have the locals beating us so uh, they came out again to to tackle the volunteers on the streets obviously they went back to the barracks reorganised probably armed themselves and came back out but the short and the long of it was that um, the volunteers actually uh, were well prepared for this and ended up uh, killing four of the dragoons in the town which had been quite serious British soldiers and uh, killing them further seven of them were wounded and uh, 14 were taken in as prisoners for behaving as they did and the rest were chased back to the barracks and housed at the barracks and I presume an officer at that stage said that's the end of that. Uh, so they actually had a, they had a quite a you know a functional role when they needed to. When so they had to, yeah, yeah so yeah. only for that I mean the mayor of the town uh, in 1783 was even a it was a role that was declining and it he didn't have many roles at that stage but he could call on the volunteers and that's that's what he did. That was his big day. That was his big day. And it, was the, it, was the, it was the volunteers' big day as well, John. I mean, this must have been, you know, they had spent a lot of time, uh, you, you could imagine them in the mall and, you know, probably on the, on, on the lawn in, um, you know, up in, up, up in the middle of the town there parading and whatnot. And basically what they were doing was they were waiting for, their, their main role was not police and it was actually to wait for this invasion of, from France that they knew was coming. But the, reg, the regular army were away. So they were... They must they have been, they were, absolutely, yeah. they were fit to go, they were trigger happy, and if anything got in their way, I'd say they were <laughs> going to get it. So, what, what, Noel, would have been the main crimes that the police came up against in Castlebar? And I know it varied, you know, from general, decade to decade, but in general, what did you find well, there was, in the research? I suppose until policing was really regularised in, um, you know, the first kind of main police force was the Peace Preservation Force in uh, 1814 was uh, Sir Robert Peel, who was Chief Secretary for Ireland, uh, created the Peace Preservation Force and the crimes he was coming up against then were 
kind of you could call them mainly agrarian they were taxes so there was there was a tithe that, that was collected by the Church of Ireland mm-hmm. and it was for the upkeep of the Protestant church in the town but everyone had to pay it regardless of who you were regardless of your religion so Catholics had to pay as well so obviously it was hated and people who were uh, didn't have you know that level of money that they could dispose of for that not even to their own church obviously hated hated that the peace preservation force though were a funny a grouping in that they weren't a standing police force they were called into an area when a disturbance happened and once it was the peace was restored or preserved as they as they said they would leave the area again and so they left it unpoliced uh, so again the british had to come around to see how they were going to further police how would we say, revolutionised policing in Ireland. They, they formed the Irish Constabulary then in 1836 and it takes a more permanent role then. But the Irish Constabulary had their own crimes. Uh, let me see. And, in, in, you know, there's there's so many reports. Actually, it's fantastic if you go online and I've mentioned them in the book as well. So in terms of uh, what crimes were the police here in Castlebar facing, if we look at a report uh, on the general state of prisons in Ireland in 1823, it details a lot of the most common crimes that uh, the county constabulary and later the Irish constabulary would have been coming up against. And and the main ones, John, I, I found were um, there was assault, burglary, illegal distillation, which is uh, putching, of course, uh, cattle stealing, larceny, theft, uh, murder, the receiving of uh, stolen goods. Returning from transportation, which I'll talk about a little bit later, returning from transportation before time, which I didn't actually think happened. It's very hard to get back from Australia. Um, Riotous assembly and vagrancy. These were common ones. There was actually quite a few uncommon ones that were turning up in Castle Bar as well that had to be uh, dealt with. I came across a court case where Terence MacDonald was indicted for the abduction of a lady called Margaret Dempsey. Obviously, his, his intention was to force Margaret to marry him. Now, he was a very lucky man because he was found not guilty because it was quite a serious punishment to it. This was in, in 1843. But the abduction of women to, and uh, in an effort to compel them to marry was quite common and uh, went right up into the 20th century. And there was a case here in Castlebar and, uh, you know, he was... Um, how he explained the abduction if he wasn't found guilty of, <laughs> of not, tr- not trying to force uh, her to marry him. You know, as kind of politics heated up later in the century, the Irish Constabulary uh, were renamed the Royal Irish Constabulary after 1867 for their part in, in putting down the Fenian Rising. And during that period, say in the late, in, in right throughout the 1860s, there was a lot of, and I think there's nearly a turn in the police and in Castle Bar where the police really start, uh, you know, this might sound a bit harsh or very general terms, but they almost start turning on people. So they go from policing to really being a, um, you know, the crown's representative in the town. Right. And yeah. there's a lot of raids in towns on people that had nothing to do with Fenian activity. There was a lot of uh, we'll call rough policing. Remember, these are armed policemen uh, turning up in houses of, uh, you know, young families and people who are really, you know, poor and just tradespeople. Uh-huh. So there was a lot, there was a lot of raids, a lot of court cases uh, for people in, in, during the Fenian. Now, they weren't all innocent. There's a many people here. And, and again, it's in the book. A lot of people we know who were uh, convicted uh, for their part in Fenian activity. Later on, then, of course, the RSE had to put up with uh, the land war from 1879 right. yeah. into the 1880s. Mm-hmm. And that was quite, uh, I'd say it was a tough, uh, a tough role to police because there you had assemblies of men uh, carrying out, um, you know, actions against landlords or tenants that took on 
land from those that were evicted. And a lot of the crimes at that stage were, you know, the maiming of animals, destruction of property. So, you know, the land war, of course, in Castlebar was, was, you know, it was well, well established here. Mm -hmm. And the actions of those, you know, we had uh, James Daly here in the town and Michael David, etc., Nally and Walsh and all these well-known names were very much central in that right. part of, you know, uh, land agitation. Yeah. But they, they were always, the, you know, from the beginning of the 1800s on, anything to do with crime on its own. If if John Healy committed a crime, they could deal with it. But anything that was secret, secret societies or crimes where a band of men got together, they were highly suspicious of it. And this all stemmed from, you know, 1798 here in Castlebar, yes. where all of a sudden the town turned on, on you know the British military and the British right. presence and and, right. and ran them out of the town so that right. threat was always there right. and right up to the late 1700s punishment for any crime was quite heavy and uh, you know there was this term put to the amount of punishments that ended in death the amount of crimes that had punishment of death was quite huge right up until the reign of Queen Victoria and from then on the British uh, really feel that it's too harsh and even transportation. Transportation was the forced movement of a, of a convicted criminal out of the country for a number mm-hmm. of years, usually to Australia. And they were moved for, could be four years, seven years, or, or life. And uh, so death sentences weren't given as much. And instead, they, the Crown opted for transportation. transportation. So when we hear of people coming back as a crime was returning from transportation. That's extraordinary. Coming back yeah. from Australia. Uh, you know, there's a great there's a great book on... on um, an escape of Fenians uh, from uh, that escaped out of Australia on the boat, the Catalpa. It's a fantastic book. But the effort that those men had to go through, they needed support from people in Ireland, Britain and America to get out. So how anyone returned on their own bat from Australia back to Castle Bar, uh, it's quite something. Uh, but if somebody was transported, we'll say, for a particular length of time, would the state bring them back? No. I mean, you'd have to find your own way back. You, you, you do. And and if I'm not mistaken, you also had, because it was quite an expense to get you back, so they would try and set you up over there and try and set and you up with there. a trade. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, you obviously are, uh, you know, you're producing member of society yes. and uh, yeah. you probably, yeah. I'm not sure you'd learn a trade in prison because it was quite harsh and it was uh, tough labour. And, and a lot of them married and... Uh, stayed on it. Sure, we know yes. now. You know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. that's how From many. From what Irish you said earlier, Noel, did, did the police alienate the people of the town a lot, or did that go in waves as well? You know, was it? I th- I think it went in waves. I mean, if if we, you know, I mentioned there that the the payment of the tithe that's a tax to mm-hmm. to the Church of Ireland was uh, was really resented. You know, it really was. And when Daniel O'Connell uh, really started growing in 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 his. Uh, you know, political presence around the country, and he was a, re- a regular visitor to Castle Bar as well, and and that would have pumped up the people. That's so right. yeah. O'Connell was uh, his his repeal campaign was against the Act of Union, which merged uh, the kingdoms of Ireland and uh, Great Britain together. But he quite cleverly saw that the tide was hated by the people, and so his campaign also was anti-tide as well. You know, so these two campaigns went side by side. Uh, I, I, I think into the 1830s when the poor laws came in and there was a poor poor law rate on houses oh, yeah, and these guys, people couldn't pay these at all but they were compelled to and you'd have uh, police uh, accompanied by military sometimes armed, knocking on the door of peasants looking for money and you know there was uh, people fought back uh, people fought, fought back with 
uh, blacksmith made guns, anything they could find. And and when you go on later on to the time of the land war we we're talking about, the RIC would have had to accompany bailiffs to evictions and they had to make sure that everything went to plan and if the bailiffs were being attacked, the RIC stepped in. So as the years went on, you know, people were seeing that apart from keeping the peace and that's the job of a, of a constable, they were they looked and they appeared that they were taking the side of the crown. They were taking money for the crown. They were taking, uh, mm-hmm. you know, evicting people with the bailiffs. And as far as people were concerned, they were one and the same. And we see then in the late 1800s then as nationalism, Irish nationalism is being ratcheted up. Uh, they really, the RIC really become a target then and they became a target here in the town as well. They were an easy target. You know, a barracks was quite easily taken over but they had a lot of, there was quite a few constables in the town but they they were easily attacked, I suppose, and they were kind of, you know, especially Castlebar. Yeah, and Castlebar was still, you know, a provincial town, right. you know, well separated from, from Dublin and well separated from London and the idea of getting help quite quickly was not going to happen. Not going to happen yeah. So you get actually, you get a lot of retirements then into the early 1900s of RIC. Men that were coming up to nearly retirement age, just they had enough of it. And and they were they, just they were they were opting out. They were yeah. just retiring from it. Yeah, yeah. Nationally, how did Castlebar rate? Would you say in terms of law abidingness or not? You know, was it was it a, a criminal town, for example? No, I don't think you could call it that. I mean, every town would have had uh, every town would have had when the county constabulary were here. They were formed in eighteen twenty two. You know, you're obliged to take uh, these police force on. The town can't f- ignore them, unlike. The Castlebar Corporation, which probably just forgot about the sergeants at Mason, they didn't have to pay people then. Mm. But the Irish Constabulary were here, so the town was well policed. But what I had found was that apart from the usual crimes of vagrancy, you know, drunkenness, they really are outside of the main political and agrarian hotspots, say, of you know the the nineteen thirties and the poor law comes in, the sixties mm-hmm. when Fenianism is high and land agitation then into the 1880s outside of that Castlebar really is uh, just an I, I would say a typical provincial town quite a big town as well you know mm-hmm. and even in the 1940s you know when we think of the, the uh, when the Free State was established in 1922 these police here in the south which was the Civic Guard carried on that armed response so they actually were armed for a year and in uh, a year after their establishment, they were renamed on Garda Siakana and disarmed. So they were, that was it from, from then on. There was no, but they were actually taken on that, uh, same. This, the same method. And I think they saw that this probably wouldn't go down well. There was all, also a fear that anti-treaty members of the Garda would use their guns against the state as well. Right. But I right. think they had an idea that they were going to do something different. They weren't going to be heavy handed as well. Um, so into the 1940s here in Castlebar, you know, it's a town of about 7,000 people. It's quite quite large, and uh, it's deemed um, crime free, and that continues into the sixties. Actually, nationally, crime levels fall well into the nineteen sixties, and after that, then we start seeing some of these kind of modern mm-hmm. uh, crimes yeah. coming in. There's you know uh, armed raids, you know attacks on the elderly, and right. crime starts to get a bit yeah. more kind of vicious. But, but generally speaking, generally speaking, yeah, right up into the nineteen nineties, we're actually we're 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 well below. Uh, the national the average national in terms average. of in terms of of, yeah. of our crime rate, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as you said, there it was very much a case of policing by consent, as opposed to policing by oppression. Exactly. Nowadays, no. we have a police service. Of course, you know, That's it was right. a police force. 
from 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 the 1800s on when the Peace Preservation Force of 1814 was very much a force and they were based along military lines and the Irish Constabulary set up in the 1830s was a, a paramilitary group all as armed swords uh, rifles uh, you know you can imagine that seeing police and you know there was a crime and uh, there was a, a law in town here where you had to keep the outside of your house clean and the street swept uh, you've a heavily armed policeman policing that you know it's over the top <laughs> over the top <laughs> and heavy handed yeah, yeah. so yeah. you know after so many decades uh, I think they finally got it right and decided there's no need for sending out no, yeah. put the guns out <laughs> well that's a very interesting rundown, and I'm sure that there's an awful lot more in the book that you didn't have time to, yeah. to get round to, but the readers can get to that. Absolutely. Before we go to the actual ad break, we'll take a look at an ad from the past. And Noel has been looking through the newspapers and he has picked out something that I think will be of interest. Noel, will you tell us about it and tell us? What the ad is? Yeah, well, just uh, uh, on the back of our conversation about crime and police, and I found a fantastic ad here in the Connacht Telegraph from uh, June 1897. Anthony Philbin, gunsmith and machinist, begs to inform the gentry and public generally that he is prepared to do every kind of repairs required to the following articles. Guns, revolvers, all kinds of firearms and machinery, an extensive brass foundry connected with the establishment, plumbing of every description, extensive testimonials from the press and general public. Bicycle repairing, a speciality. I think that's fantastic, John. It's a, it's a real sign of a, of a man who's going to turn his hand to anything, as they'd say. Absolutely. Do we and know anything was, about the Philbins? Yeah, he was he was the father of a legendary char- character called Francie Philbin, who served with the British Army in India. Came home, I'd say a bit shell-shocked, but a well-known character around the town. And there are numerous stories told about him, but Johnny Mee is a particular one, where during the... Eucharistic procession every year when the great and the good would come through the town holding the canopy over the monstrance. Francie would position himself down at Garavan's Corner as it was then and he'd recite, here's the robbers coming through <laughs> as, the, <laughs> as the, the great and good of the <laughs> town passed through. So that was, yeah, that man that you read there was the father of, of Francie Philbin who was was somewhat of a character. Since opening our doors in 2017, Bridge Street has evolved into a community hub, a bar, meeting place and event space for locals and visitors to Castle Bar. With weekly music sessions and performances of all genres, including a monthly Bridge of Song showcase of up-and-coming singer-songwriters, Bridge Street Castle Bar keeps her lit. The Connacht Telegraph Serving the community since 1828 and now reaching 1.5 million people per month on our online and print platforms. Well, we'd like to invite listeners to submit any comments or questions or any observations they have to make about the history of Castlebar. And you can send that to historyofcastlebar at gmail.com for further discussion. Noel, just a question that has come up there in our discussion. Uh, what was the implication of having both British Army and police? Were they in each other's way or did they complement each other or was there friction between them? Well, it, it, yeah, it's, it's the age-old one, who polices the police? And you had a lot of that. And I'd say at times there was a lot of friction between who was the main authority in the town. But more often than not, they acted together. And where, after the Irish Constabulary were established and were a permanent police force, they 
acted as the main police force and the military were only called in when when force of strength and threats had to be used, I suppose. And that usually came in with the collection of 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 rates. But it was always a garrison town and there's always queries about what's the pros and cons of having a, such a large military in the town. And I suppose on one side you had a lot of money brought into the town from the regiments that came to town and the barracks was always quite full. You know, there could be uh, from many cases where you had 700, 800 soldiers up there and they had to be fed. Uh, they had to be kept warm. They had to have linen, etc. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of businesses businesses in the town did quite well from contracts for milk, contracts for turf, just supplies from shops, cigarettes. You know, these were all very, very welcome. And we had a lot of... Uh, so it was good for business too. It was very good for, for business. For business and even as the as the capital, of, uh, the capital of Mayo, we had, you know, the courthouse, we had police barracks, army barracks, asylums, the prison, major consumers, as we call them today, right. you know, turf, milk, breads, all of that. On the, on, the, on the other side then, of course, we had a kind of a possibly an uneasy tension with the military by times, you know, and um, while a lot of the regiments came in were from outside, obviously, of the area, it's, you know, and I'm thinking just after 1916, when Castlebar became the centre of the brains behind the operation of countering any rebellious activity, okay. there was, you know, up on a thousand plus soldiers uh, stationed in the barracks in town and they were, you know, they were not going to be taking anyone as as innocent, you know. So it must have been intimidating by times. And as as regiments were changing, they would roll through the town. You know, you can imagine on horseback and there's the rattling and there's the... So quite, I, I mean, I'd, you'd love to have been there at the time. It'd been quite a, quite a you know, you could have six, 60 horses riding into the barracks, you know, Scots Greys or, right. you know, with their big bearskin hats on these guys. Right. And it was all very flamboyant as well. But we know at times that the British troops you know, drink on board, possibly a little uneasy with where they were stationed. In, I in, was going to ask you that uh, question, Possibly yes. in the back end of beyond in Castlebar, they wanted to be somewhere else uh, right. in, in the heat of it, possibly a little bit restless, I'd say. And sometimes it got heated and drink was... Uh, and right. they were encouraged a lot of the time by officers, you know. I mean, we, we know that there was uh, duels fought in, up in the, in the barracks yard and a lot of scores were settled up there. Sometimes even uh, some of the town's inhabitants were, were part of that. Yeah, I think, you know, it was kind of, it's a two-way, it was a it was a two-way thing. We, we yeah. took on one hand and on the other we kind of, <laughs> we <laughs> frowned at them from afar. That's right, that's yeah. right. <laughs> well, on that, uh, that's it. Just to let our listeners know that uh, our next episode, the, it will be, our feature will be churches and chapels. Uh, I'd like to thank the listeners and remind them that the book can be bought online at mayobooks.ie or in-store in the Castle Bookshop. The book is called The History of Castle Bar by Noel Campbell and John Healy. The History of Castle Bar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie. The series is produced by me, Brendan Gilmartin. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and leave a review.